Hey, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Talk Talks. I'm your host, Anthony Burton. Today's episode is a conversation between journalists Mohamed Fahmy of the UBC School of Journalism and Dennis Ward of the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Moderated by the CBC's Bartley Kivis, it was recorded live on May 7th, 2017 at the Prairie Theatre Exchange in Winnipeg. Mohamed Fahmy is a dual Canadian-Egyptian award-winning journalist, war correspondent, and author who started his lengthy war reporting career when he stepped foot in Iraq on the first day of the war in 2003. In 2012, he was among the CNN team honored with a Peabody Award for the network's coverage of the Arab Spring. He was appointed Egypt Bureau Chief of Al Jazeera English in 2013, where he was then arrested alongside two Al Jazeera journalists by Egyptian authorities and placed in Cairo's infamous Scorpion Prison. Upon his release in 2015, he and his wife Marwa Omara founded the Fami Foundation, a nonprofit that provides financial assistance and advocacy on behalf of political prisoners and prisoners of consciousness worldwide. Upon returning to Canada, he joined the University of British Columbia as an adjunct professor, and in 2017, he released his book, The Marriott Cell, documenting his time in prison. Originally from southern Manitoba, Dennis Ward spent two years working for CHAT-TV in Medicine Hat and eight years as a video journalist in Thunder Bay at TBTV. He returned to Manitoba to join APTN's Winnipeg Bureau as a reporter and a correspondent in September 2014. He's covered the No DAPL campaign as well as many other pipeline protest movements and has seen firsthand, from rubber bullets to police-designated free speech zones, the ways that institutions can interfere in the journalistic mission. Without further ado, here's Bartley, Dennis, and Muhammad. Okay, we're here to talk about risk, journalism, uh, threats, and you really, the reality is, uh, in many parts of the world, uh, journalists are now, instead of being seen years ago where you could enter war zones and largely be immune by some mythical shield, journalists are no longer seen as, you know, neutral characters, they are targeted. What, looking back, would you say was the most shocking aspect of your experience? You know, I, I've, I've had the pleasure of covering the Iraq War and the Arab Spring and conflict zones uh, straight out of college from Montreal on the first day of the war in Iraq, and I never thought I'd be arrested sitting in a hotel in Cairo while doing my job, and that's exactly what happened. We were working in the Marriott Hotel and a makeshift office for Al Jazeera English, and the cops knocked on the door, they had to use the old waiter trick. You know, I, I looked through the hole, said room service, and you know, I had never ordered anything, but they still, uh, I still opened the door and they barged in, and they were basically producing a video. So the, they had a video camera rolling, and a photographer was there, and they were painting me as a, a terrorist, basically. And um, before I even got to the police station, I was charged with conspiring with terrorists, fabricating news, operating with proper documents, and uh, it became worldwide news, specifically because my two other colleagues who were arrested with me were, you know, we've been in the business for a while, and a lot of journalists knew who we were, and they knew exactly that these are not our values. And that's something very important. You know, every single job you do is important. That's why they vouch for us, these reporters and these NGOs and these organizations like the UN, ambassadors across the world, Obama was speaking about our case, the head of the UN. So that unity behind our cause really helped us throughout our whole ordeal. But it was intense because at the time Egypt was going through a very tough period. There was major security sweeps. The Muslim Brotherhood group had been designated as terrorists. And it was kind of ironic because the Muslim Brotherhood group was running the country for a whole year during that time. 
And the last story I reported on air for about half an hour was after a car bomb hit a police station in Egypt and killed at least a dozen officers. And I was out there and something flashed on TV, uh, a statement from the government that says the Muslim Brotherhood has been designated as a terrorist group. Now, I didn't know what that means because we don't have a unified definition of a terrorist in the world today. When someone asks that, they say, okay, what does that mean? So anyway, ironically, four days later, on December 29th, that knock on the door when they came in, they designated me as a terrorist, a member of the group I was reporting on on TV. So it was just really um, incredibly weird, to say the least, to be thrown into a scorpion prison, one of the worst prisons in the Middle East, with members of Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Muslim Brotherhood senior ministers, and a lot of young boys as well who were thrown in the mix. And here I was under that same roof with these people, living with them 24 hours a day. And for me, I thought in the beginning, well, this is going to be over tomorrow morning. This is a big mistake. The embassy will get me out. Al Jazeera, you know, the media is going to make a big deal out of it. But it never happened. You know, every day became obvious that this is going to be a long, prolonged uh, stay here. You know, and then when we were officially charged, they branded us as the Marriott cell. Typical sensationalism, you know, and it wasn't done by the media. It's the police there in Egypt. They, they like to make a big deal out of everything, you know, and so that's what happened, basically. <laughs> we like that. Yeah, and that's just, I, I feel it's almost tried to, con you know, condense this into, yeah. but we like to talk about, we like to think here in the safe confines of Canada that these experiences, that happens over there. That happens in a, a less developed country, a less politically sophisticated country. Dennis, you're covering Standing Rock. What did you see? Yeah, I guess to uh, bring it closer to home, it was still the United States, but uh, at times it felt like a war zone in some of the incidents where you have hundreds of militarized police with uh, assault weapons and snipers and shooting uh, rubber bullets at you and pepper spraying you. They shot rubber bullets at reporters? At, uh, at ourselves, yes. Uh, the main, the biggest conflict, I guess, there was uh, last October 27th. And APTN was kind of the only mainstreamish type media that was down there. There were other people who were uh, live streamers. So we were pretty much the only ones down there. Obviously, we had a huge camera, much like the one that's right there, and microphone with the APTN flash on it, but it, it didn't matter. We were, my camera person was pepper sprayed. We were shot at with rubber bullets and what they started calling less than lethal ammunition, which could still kill you, but the chances are you're, you're likely to survive. Sound cannons, uh, people were tasered. Somebody was tasered in my hotel room, like not in my exact hotel room, in our hotel. It, it was pretty wild stuff, and there were uh, journalists at other events, because the, there was many clashes like this over the nine months. Uh, there was uh, a couple of journalists who were taken into custody and facing charges just for covering this event. Sounds like the Middle East to me. <laughs> <laughs> the big picture, though, when you, how, I mean, this sounds like a ridiculously obvious question, but how do you do your jobs when you are targeted? How do other journalists go to the Middle East and do what you did knowing you went to jail? Well, look, in the past, like you said, the word press used to be actually a, something that protects you. Now it's like a, you become a target. It's not, it's, it's extremely unprecedented the, the way journalists are being targeted today and human rights defenders on the field. You know, you're being, there's no neutral zone. You're being targeted by Islamist extremists and the governments who are trying to get you. So it's becoming really harder than, than ever, as far as I see. You know, the more than 200 journalists that are currently jailed worldwide in the past 10 years, 700, 800 have been killed according to the UN 
while they're doing their jobs. So it's not an easy task anymore to cover these stories. Yet at the same time, we have in the United States and, and, and elsewhere an effort to portray all media, all journalists as the enemy. Yeah, I mean, at Standing Rock, the final thing in this past February when uh, it was the camp was going to be evicted, law enforcement was going to move in and take everybody out, the uh, law enforcement there wanted to control the message and they put out an email, look, if you want to be, if you want to be a part of the credited media, you meet us here, we'll drive you in, you'll be in the free speech zone or whatever they call these things. Basically, you had to stay there, so my camera and I, man and I slept in our vehicle the night before and outside of the camp so we didn't have to be a part of this because this is when CNN and NBC and CBS uh, all came for this final event, uh, you know, smelling blood as some of the, the protesters referred to it as. So we were like free game again for law enforcement because we were past the free speech zone so whatever, if you got shot at or, or, I, or taken into custody, it didn't matter. I'd like to comment on that. I mean, I was watching these videos on the computer and I was like, I was pretty, I was shocked to say the least, but I also do remember very clearly that I've seen people in the Middle East die from rubber bullets and from birdshot, and I've seen people lose their eye, and I've reported on any of these cases. That's why I was extremely shocked when I saw what was happening in Standing Rock. Big picture, what went through your, both of your minds the first time you, uh, first time you saw the sitting president of the United States refer to CNN, Washington Post, New York Times as Fake news. Well, I'll tell you straight off the top that it really angered me because, you know, these dictators in the Middle East were celebrating that and they, because that gives them legitimacy for what they've been saying about CNN and New York Times for a decade. So now they're saying, yeah, we told you so. You know, the President of the United States is saying that. You know, I usually check Arab news and the Middle East and, the, and CNN and, and I, I'm, I'm, I check a lot of news and the Arabic talk shows were like, hey, we told you before, you know, these guys are fake news and look, look what's happening. And we were way ahead when we called them, we called the shot on that, you know. Yeah, I think it's one thing when your government is calling you fake news, but it, it already exists out there that uh, people from all political spectrums or, or whatever cases think that you might be fake news and that's why there's so much of this live streaming that's happening now because people don't have faith in us anymore. Okay, so does the digitization of reporting, is it democratized journalism or is it watered it down? Or is there something between that ridiculous sort of dichotomy I've just said? Yeah, uh, you know, I guess um, if I go back to Standing Rock again, I would say that both sides were started creating their own news because there was a real vacuum there of actual people covering it. Uh, props to APTN for staying there for almost nine months, but aside from that, it was people on their internet feeds or on their Facebook feeds and Twitter, and then you had the law enforcement side who started making their own YouTube videos and, and putting those out there, and they both just like were completely opposites of reality, but everybody was getting out their own news in the way that they wanted it, and, and it goes to, you're preaching to the choir really anyways. So. Well, where I'm going with this is, uh, as Mohammed was just mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Reporters Without Borders dropped Canada down. We're no longer in the top 20 most free countries when it comes to uh, the freedom of journalists to do their job. Well, you know, uh, Reporters Without Borders, uh, the last week they stated Canada went down 10 points on the World Press Freedom Index during Mr. Harper's time in, in Ottawa, and they called it the dark days of journalism for Canada. This year, I wrote an op-ed a couple of days before the report uh, surfaced, and I said, I doubt that Canada is going to improve. 
and they did drop four points. And the reason I, I said that is because I've been living it back home here. You know, we don't have a press freedom issue in Canada, but we have some real threats. So, for example, we have the case of Ben Maku from Vice uh, News. He's a friend of mine, and he, he did some great reporting using Kick Messenger, and he communicated and interviewed a Calgary man who joined extremists in Iraq. So the RCMP wanted his notes to be able to use it in court against this man, and he refused to give it the notes. And then he lost the first battle in court, he lost the appeal, and he's going to the Supreme Court for that. People who are not really aware why he's doing that, he's doing that because simply we, the, the sources won't trust him. We don't work for the police, you know, and that's why he's doing it, basically. And that's a threat to press freedom. Another case is, you know, the, the journalist in Quebec when you find out that 10 journalists have been spied on by the police through a court order like Patrick Lagasse, they were uh, tracking his GPS on his phone to see where he's going. You know, so that when I hear that kind of stuff, I'm like, whoa, you know, what happened? Am I back in Syria or Iraq or something? You know, so that's why I got worried and that's why I anticipated that Canada's not gonna go up any higher. We actually have police in Canada, uh, police services using devices that actually can intercept your cell phone data. Uh, there is supposedly done within warrants and right here in Winnipeg. And with that comforting thought, uh, keep going. Yeah, uh, just to, to carry on with that, I did a panel last week in Ottawa with a guy named Justin Bray who is also going to be a, a pretty big landmark case here in this country who covered a protest in Muskrat Falls in Newfoundland and went past the so-called injunction line and live streamed the whole thing on Facebook. It ended up changing the political attitude in the province of what was going on and, and led to government changing some of its policies. But now he's facing charges that could put him in jail and really send a chill across uh, a lot of journalists uh, across this country on. There were people from other networks that were there who refused to cross this line because they were worried that they would get arrested. And so if, had he not gone in there and, and stayed with this occupation, nobody would have really known. It would have been these rattle-rousers. Like, he was in there showing the workers at the hydro dam shaking the hands and they have helped feed these indigenous people who have went in there and occupied this place. And it would portrayed completely differently because he was in there and actually covering it. And I think there's a lot of, some of this is education, education of police services. I mean, well, there's constitutional right to take pictures in public. I used to sit on the board of Penn Canada and one of the simple thing, I think it's most popular web page is simply the one that says, by the way, these, this is what you can and can't do with a camera in public. But talking about threats to journalism in Canada, people like Trump will often say that people don't trust the media anymore. Do you believe that there really is, is the public more skeptical of the mainstream media? in general? Well, when I was writing my book, the editor told me, why don't you put, put your insights on that? And to be honest, yes, a lot of people have been very skeptical of the media recently. And, you know, the way, my advice to, to students and, and, and what I wrote in my book is that you, you can trust specific journalists and follow them on Twitter and you, know, and, and you know they're not PR agents who are trying to polish the government or they're trying to polish a specific cause. Um, so that's one way of doing it. And then also not, not to go with one source. I mean, to, to, to be able to read between the lines, because unfortunately there are news agencies out there that are not as meticulous as they should be. There are journalists out there that are on their own agenda, and there are others who are straight up fabricating news. You know, it's important to be more aware when trying to indulge and um, read the news to understand you know, what's happening all over the world, I guess. Yeah, I think obviously people uh, are skeptical of us now. I mean, it's always been, you're at the CBC, you know, some people just 
don't believe anything that comes out of there because you're a public broadcaster, really. I mean, when I was in journalism school, I could uh, wake up and go on to Common Dreams and get the, the left, and I could go on to Newsmax and get the right, and now that's a blurred line of but isn't what's... There, isn't, there, isn't there some hankering for this golden age that didn't exist? I mean, you go back, and you think, you go back to the 50s when McCarthyism was going on, and, and people would, any public official that was an official source, whatever they said, you would report, and that's how Joe McCarthy manipulated things. I mean, is it really any worse? That's no, well, this is a great point. I talk about what happened in Egypt as an example. The way they designated the Muslim Brother as a terrorist group, I compared it to the McCarthyism I only read about, which is, you know, anybody who participates in the protests, they burn the books, you know, uh, the idea has just been eradicated in Egypt and in the region. You know, they have been designated as terrorists in Saudi Arabia, in the United Arab Emirates, in Russia, in Bahrain, while others, other countries support them immensely. You know, this again in the United States of America, you know, they were the Trump administration were considering branding the Muslim Brotherhood as terrorists. Canada had their own investigation. Don't, I don't know where that went, but you know, the Brits investigated the Muslim Brotherhood and they said, hey, you know, they are, they have, you know, extremist ideas and, you know, but they left the door open and they didn't designate them as terrorists. So, yes, the news is being manipulated and if you go to the Middle East, you'll be shocked. You'll see, you know, straight PR videos that are, you know, produced by governments and sent to TV stations. <laughs> You'll see... That does happen here. Yeah, well, I'm picking up on it, <laughs> slowly but gradually. <laughs> I mean, they'd love us to, I mean, I, I used a piece of a Winnipeg Police Service video in a piece I did on, on Friday. Of course, it was, part of it was because the production values were so hilariously bad that we had to put it in there. But I, I cut you off, but I have a question. Dennis, do you consider, is APTN mainstream media? Um, yeah, you know, that's, a, that's tough to say at times. We're not, we're not recognized by a lot of people, I guess, in, in Canada as being a, a mainstream a go-to source that we're seeing kind of more as this, um, what would you call it, where only you know indigenous people or people that are interested in indigenous issues will go to to find that news. But if you're branded as activist, do you think that delegitimizes the work that is going on in your network? Yeah, which I find interesting that people branded sometimes as activists. I mean, we do numerous stories outing corruption on reserves or with, with chiefs or anything like that. So I don't know anybody that I work with that I would call a, an activist reporter in our network. Switching to the slightly more mundane threats, what threat to the quality of journalism and, and press freedom is, is the economics right now? Layoffs, cuts, media consolidation, the shrinking number of outlets. Well, you know, you, you could sense it uh, even in, in conflict zones. I worked for CNN for three years and, you know, other stations, and it's becoming harder and harder to be able to send the, the veteran reporters, and they're starting to rely on freelancers or local reporters that sometimes, you know, turn out, turn out to be not your most trusted reporter, and they'd have an agenda, and they become activists, and the quality of the journalism suffers because of what is called citizen journalism. Now, I respect citizen journalism, and it's very important, but unfortunately it has been abused because of the conflict zones over there are much harder to penetrate and report from, so they start relying on people inside. And it is, it, it is an issue when, when, you, when, when the money is not there to produce good journalism. You know? And I know locally here as well, there were cuts in Vancouver where I live, and the Vancouver Sun, and in other organizations, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not a good thing, but it's happening all over the world. Yeah, uh, when you talk about the journalists and the, the citizen journalists, as we were talking earlier, you know, in Standing Rock I watched journalists rolled bales onto the road and, and set them on fire at protests and 
these were the people you're supposed to be trusting uh, reading their material later and then they take photos of the bale they just set on fire so I guess that makes for good images but uh, that's oh, intense. <laughs> but I mean it, it's tough for everybody everywhere and I have so many friends that I went to school with or that I've worked with over the years that are leaving the industry altogether because there's no stability you don't know what the future is going to hold newsrooms are getting smaller it's a uh, pretty grim I just uh, point out I think uh, Dina, I hope you don't mind me pointing you out there, but you know we lost a super important court reporter, one of the two best court reporters I'd say in this entire province to buyouts, and now you know there's people that don't have the connections, that don't have the knowledge, that are trying to pick that up, but uh, it's a big blow when you lose one person with that kind of uh, connection and clout to you know buyouts and, and cuts. What fills the gap? when there are fewer reporters? I think what fills the gap is what's exactly happening now, is that reporters are expected to go in, film, shoot, edit, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and report. And it's becoming, you know, if you're gonna have to multitask. And, uh, and I've, seen, uh, I've seen it happening on the field. And I think that's just, it just makes it even harder for us to work and, and produce quality journalism. And uh, that's what you gotta do. You gotta be good at digital journalism. You gotta be able to roll out and be good at technical and connecting your satellite to be able to go live on the field and not rely on like the old days on your producer. And you know, so it's about just being able to juggle and do it all, I guess. But why should people care? Because a lot of people, let's face it, reporters are, are they're not a well-liked profession in general. They're down, <laughs> they're down there with lawyers and bail bondsmen yes. and uh, Canadian football league referees. Seriously though, how do you get people to care about what happens to these uh, I think it's cretins? tough because, because of you know, citizen journalism and all this, there's so much more content it seems that's out there. It's just a matter of how good and balanced that content maybe is and where it's coming from. You don't know where it's coming from. but. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody, there's so much content now that you'll read the story you want to read no matter what the bias or twist on it is or where it came from, I guess. Now, in terms of actual fake news, not what Trump says is fake news, but actual fake news, made-up stories, is fake news just an irritant or is this a threat to democracy? It's a huge threat to democracy because the fake news Trump was talking about and what happened in, during the U.S. elections, that's one kind of fake news. But there's also another level of fake news. I mean... Uh, in the Middle East, for example, what is a coup will be branded as a revolution and they will mobilize everyone from the journalists to the PR agencies to um, the government paid anchors to sell it to you that way. And many of the governments there, they have electronic militias, they say, where they have rooms filled with uh, people who are on Twitter and Facebook uh, who are actually promoting a specific lie and it's disseminated throughout the social media and it's a total fabrication. And you have, so you have now the military in whatever country we're talking about and you have the Muslim Brotherhood and you have you know, the terrorists as well who are you know, extremists who have become very tech savvy and good at that and they're all disseminating fake news. So for you to be able to pick up on it, you really gotta know your, your, your stuff and you know, be able to uh, differentiate it. But earlier you said, okay, read multiple sources, but how can we expect the average person who is so busy in their day and they don't wanna, some of them just don't wanna pay for the New York Times or, or, or the Winnipeg Free Press, they want their news free. How do we expect the ordinary person to be able to get through this giant cloud of garbage that's out there surrounding <laughs> this so-called objective truth. I mean, I guess you just hope that your audience is educated enough and wants to uh, search for that truth. But yeah, you're right. There's not enough time. And with when how many people rooms... even take time to like 
read the price compare their you know which is a cheaper can of tomato soup like yeah. I mean, you stick you stick to what you know you speak to the journalists that you know the ones you trust the ones you've been you've been reading uh, for many years and you know they're that you know these guys are not going to be um, you know affected by all that trust your brand I guess <laughs> so you're talking about these psyops and this military grade stuff here and like there's two different kinds of fake news I remember I was like for fun I think I clicked on Breitbart around the time of the Super Bowl and I think the Breitbart headline was Lady Gaga to perform satanic ritual at halftime at the Super Bowl I'm like <laughs> okay this is like National Enquirer funny right like I want to click on this and it's obviously fake news but there's this other kind of fake news like I was reading early this morning Morning, uh, an Observer or Guardian report about how tech companies are aggregating Facebook and Google data to specifically tailor a story to you and you and you and you based on your search terms. That may no this story that's being assembled, nobody else may even see. Like, this is crazy stuff. Sure. And what we're going to just see more and more of, I think. That's depressing. It's Give me something very positive. Depressing. <laughs> but no, but seriously, though, I mean, how do ordinary journalists, aside from reporting that this is happening, how, does, how do journalists who don't have the uh, capabilities of Russian or Chinese or possibly American military-grade intelligence behind them combat this stuff? Well, I don't have Facebook, so I, I, you know, I, I basically try to stick to the, to the old-school ways of doing things. You know? Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> no, seriously. No. Uh, what's your question again? No, but how do you get, how do ordinary journalists combat what is effectively military-grade fake news? Well, you know, um, there's two ways of doing it. You, 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 you fight the battle and you end up in prison. <laughs> or you, um, you, know, you stick to, to what you do and um, you, know, you stick to your values and it's becoming harder and harder every day. That's all I got to say about that. Dennis, if there's one thing from your last couple of years working, your professional life, that you'd want to share to somebody curious about journalism, about how you try to convey balance and objective reality to people, there's just one thing that you'd want to tell people, keeping in mind that a lot of people think we just, you know, make stuff up anyway for the heck of yeah. it. Uh, sources, talk to as many people as you can, because I think, uh, you know, like good journalists fall victim to kind of fake news by just relying on press release from this side and a press release from that side. You're not actually getting out there and seeing what's going on. Maybe you don't have the resources to go and see what's going on. So you're just like, well, police said this. And uh, I guess that's the end of the story. That's how they died or whatever. But sources, talk to as many people as you can. Get out there if you, as long as you can. And can you recall one story that you were involved with that took on a life of its own beyond its, the intentional... Re the reporting might have been completely fair and accurate, but the story itself... Yeah, and I think we were talking about this probably backstage, and that was Show Lake 40 when Vice uh, Canada had an exclusive with the Prime Minister on Show Lake 40, a place that I'd done like two years worth of coverage of and they'd done a little bit anyways, they flew in with a helicopter and, and the Prime Minister was going there for pretty softball type of uh, coverage. So we went there, hopped on a boat uh, with a band member, took us across, although some people with Vice accused us of basically taking our own boat there and rowing across to go disrupt this whole thing. We got kicked off, I tweeted maybe twice about us being kicked off. Police escorting us off onto a boat to get out of there. And it just went nuts, like both sides, Ezra Levant and, and those type of people using the situation for their side, saying that Trudeau and his government are kicking journalists out and not covering the story. On what and basis were you removed from Shoal Lake 40? The basis that, um, you know, we were not invited. Although you only need to be invited by a band member to go, but you know, Vice had this exclusive and that was the way that it was going to be. We weren't going to get access to anything. 
So we were escorted by police onto a police boat and taken back uh, to the mainland. Not invited to a large peninsula in the Canadian Shield that... Yeah. Can you think of a story that, or what story best exemplifies something that you feel that, you know, I did a good job on this, yet ended up spinning out in a way that you... That... Yeah, well, there's a whole bunch of stories uh, I could think of, but unfortunately, <laughs> I became the story. You know, you should never be the story. And I think that's, that's probably the, the, the biggest story that spun out of control completely because when they threw us in prison, they were sending messages to many of the, the journalists there that if you don't tow the government's line, this could happen to you. So inside that cell, we as journalists knew exactly what to do in the sense that, you know, you're on this side of the microphone, but you know that you've got to control the message outside. You know that, you know, you have to get away from that stigma that, you know, because some people will actually believe it. You know, people, like you say, don't have enough time or they read the headline, but they never read the rest of the story. So we had to take on a parallel strategy and be able to try to control what's going on in the press. And, you know, your family come and visit you and they're clueless. They've never been involved in anything like this. And now they have to be your voice outside. And as a journalist, you know, my relationship with NGOs stops at maybe getting a source here and there. But now I realized how important these NGOs are because they do put a lot of heavy work in there to protect journalists and people who are detained and they speak on your behalf at the UN and so on. So I think what happened to me is definitely something that I've learned so many lessons from and uh, I became a much stronger person after this whole ordeal and I look at things very differently as a journalist as well. You know, I'm not all obsessed about the byline and being the first guy on the story anymore. I'm just, you know, take a step back and trying to look at the bigger picture of what's happening out there. Uh, because when you go through a situation like that, you um, step back a little bit. I asked you backstage, how, given your profile now, how can you be a frontline journalist again? Well, you know, knowing myself, um, I'm starting to itch already. But, you know, I, to go back, you have to be emotionally ready to do so first. And if you ask me that question as soon as I got out, I've been freed for um, a year and a couple of months. At that time, when I first got out, there was no way I could even think of going back to journalism. Um, I still had some PTSD. I was still having nightmares about my whole ordeal. My wife was still traumatized. But gradually, you, you heal. I went to jail because I was accused of being political in my work. And I, I spent so much time trying to prove that I wasn't. You know, when you come from a place like Canada and you study here for university and you live here, you, you sometimes go to developing countries with these ideals. And you really go in you know, saying, you know, I'm gonna do my job correctly and accurately, I'll be balanced, objective. And then you go there and you realize that, whoa, these kind of ideals and values are sort of a thing of the past. So uh, you have to stick to it when you're doing your job all the time. If you wanna keep your name, if you wanna avoid prison, because that, it is a thin line. Sometimes journalism and activism and if to be able to shield yourself from getting into trouble is to stick to that being a messenger giving voice to the voiceless you know and just doing your job without you know trying to put in your own feelings and opinions about it what happens again as as journalists when a sitting u.s president calls the giving voice to the voiceless a political act well you know we yeah <laughs> You know, it's like, would you give Osama bin Laden, uh, the, you know, the voice, or would you give a, a, a well-known terrorist the microphone to go on TV? That's the biggest debate in news. You know, most TV channels will not 
you know, allow specific uh, groups that are designated as terrorists or members of these groups to go on TV while some, some networks will. So that is an ongoing debate in, in the sense that, you know, we're just being messengers, we're giving them voice because, so, you know, it is complicated, but, but the issue of protesters, we're not going to compare protesters to terrorists, I mean, but the whole, the whole middle, the Arab Spring that spread through, you know, so many countries and, and it was all about the protester. And it, 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 that the protester was the, the cover of the Time magazine in 2011 or 12, I'm not sure. And because the, the protester is someone who comes with legitimate demands and does it peacefully. And, you know, once you start throwing those rocks and Molotov cocktails, then the issue becomes debatable. <laughs> like local talk radio in Bismarck and the Fox affiliate referred to everybody at Standing Rock as eco-terrorists. They weren't protesters anymore. They were straight-up eco-terrorists. So. What happens when you are reporting on corruption on a First Nation and the chief of said First Nation accuses you, APTN, of having an agenda... I mean, how do you deal when official sources talk about the base level investigative reporting? You try to get into finding a basic information to speak on behalf of ordinary people, and you get called down by official sources. So how do you... It, that happens a lot. I mean, we, there's communities where we've basically been told, don't even bother coming here because you're going to be getting right back onto your plane and leaving again. And it's tough because the way that the, the system's set up, there's elections every two years, and it's, it's difficult. So you've got to talk to the people and not just the, the official sources because the official sources in some of these communities can make it very difficult for you to be there, never mind report on what's going on there. Well, and that's what, I mean, I, I, I forgive me for harping on this, but it seems like what Trump does is the same as what... Uh, the, the, the leader of a small community might be doing. And it makes it harder. Like, people don't want to be that person to speak out because then they'll be reprimanded later, especially if you're talking to a small community, whether it's a First Nation community or even a municipality. You have people who might want to ha say something, but they don't want to be the one on camera telling you it. And like you said, you don't want to become the story. Oh, no, it's the worst thing. It's how you deal with it as well. You know, not, you know it's, if you deal with it as a responsibility to share experience and turn it into something positive for you and the community, then, you know, it's okay. I mean, I, I, I read a book in prison um, called, written by Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, after a while, they allowed us to get books inside, and ironically, the thinnest book was about Viktor Frankl, and he was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was in the Auschwitz in uh, Nazi Germany, and um, his whole family were killed in there, and uh, he survived. So he writes about this concept called tragic optimism. How do you say yes when you're facing death and injustice and pain? How do you turn this suffering into something positive, something that is a human achievement? And, you know, I'd really recommend this book. I mean, I read it on a dingy, in a dingy cell on the floor, and I changed my life, and I, you know, I read it outside of prison again. And, you know, so it's about what you do when you become the story, you know. Hmm. It's kind of like the word that I've got circled here, authoritarianism. How close are we in this country, in this society, getting there, the way things are going? Uh, I don't think we're close at all. I, I think Canada, and I've done a lot of traveling because of my job, is one of the best countries in the world, the best model for democracy, and I say that with total conviction. <laughs> um, and I see that in, in many aspects of, a lot of, of on the street. You know, I see the way the refugee situation was dealt with. The mayor of London wanted to build his whole model in, in the UK on how the Canadians did it when Trudeau 
um, you know, brought him in and took them in. And, you know, uh, you know that one image uh, of him receiving the Syrians, that was on the front pages of many countries in the Middle East. And that's good for Canadians because it, pr it promotes us as peaceful people. It's, you don't have that, uh, you know, you're safer when you travel abroad in general. And it's just, that's what Canada is all about. And uh, diversity and acceptance and, 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 you know, also in the issue of terrorism. You know, sometimes we live here thinking that, hey, you know, this is not going to come, we're too far, we're oceans away, but it's not. It's an idea. I think we also deal with uh, issues like that here very well. Um, so, you know, one image I'll never forget is when my wife and I arrived to Toronto for the first time after I was released from prison in October 2015. And I had spoken about Canada for so many years, about how beautiful it is, and but she could never understand it. And in prison, I, my escapism, when you're living in a cell, in solitary confinement, was thinking about walking the streets again, talking to the people, being here in a society that is truly functional, <laughs> at least. And then when, she, when we landed here on an Indian summer in Toronto on Thanksgiving Day, she was walking the street, she's like, I can't believe this. I'm like, didn't I tell you? You know, you have the Jews living with the Muslims and the Sikhs and, you know, the police are respectable. They were taking selfies with us. And, you know, they, <laughs> you know so, it, you know, I, I can't even begin to compare Canada to what's happening in what you call authoritarian countries. <laughs> uh, neither can I, but the, I mean, one concern I do have is the militarization of our law enforcement. Like what we saw in the United States was, I wouldn't have even believed that that would happen in the United States. And I think that's starting to happen here as well. And if people are talking about hundreds of mini standing rocks that are going to go on because of these pipelines that are going to likely go through in the next few years, even right through this territory, then I think you're going to see that same militarization. The sheriff of the department of Morton County is now like going around the country and speaking to other law enforcement communities saying, yeah, this is how you take them down and this is how you handle a protest movement and he'll be here too, I'm sure. Coming Thanks soon. very much for that. Very optimistic and very pessimistic note. <laughs> Maybe I should stick around for more. <laughs> that note, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was recorded live on May 7, 2017 at the Prairie Theatre Exchange in Winnipeg. Uh, the panel was produced by Helen Walsh and Michael Booth, and this podcast was edited by me, Anthony Burton. I uh, hope you enjoyed, and stay tuned. There's much more talk talking to come. Thanks. Have a good one.